Welcome to Cross Training. I was waiting for the ladies. To oh my goodness. Where we look at faith and practice through a biblical lens. This is WWE SmackDown. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm still pumped from last week. I'm going to be honest. It was, it, was, it was a good recording session last week. So I just, I want to take all that energy and carry it right on in there. So, we're, we're, we're your hosts. I am Matthew Thompson. And I'm Tanner Higgins. Mason Simmons. And I just want to point out that I'm hoping that this week's recording will sound a lot better than the past two weeks. I'm really banking on it. I'm, I'm thinking really, I'm, that Matthew's figured the problem out. I'm optimistic. If, if it's not fixed this week, then ooh, we got some black magic to, to discover on our, we, on our end. Yeah, the, the devil's definitely throwing some, some fiery arrows towards our equipment here. I, don't, I have no idea. So, hopefully yeah, this week hoping, we'll finally go. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. Yeah. But... Uh, regardless of audio quality, the content of this of this podcast is just it's gonna be fantastic. Just just like last week, like I said, I'm, I'm just I've still got that energy with me. I don't know about y'all, but I'm I'm excited. Quality of content over quality of sound, but yet We're I don't know. It's very both. they're very close. We're gonna strive for both. They're very close. I sometimes maybe the quality of sound goes a little bit higher than the quality of content sometimes for me, but that's my perfectionism, I guess. You know, strike me down. Go ahead, yeah. uh, throw a punch. I mean, hey, if something's worth doing, then it's worth doing well. So obviously, we we strive for these to sound really good. That's why these past two episodes we've apologized for because we, I mean, we want to deliver something that sounds better than that. We're Are we the Borg? We strive for perfection. Resistance is futile. Oh, I think that's just you. <laughs> I've been assimilated. I've seen how I come into these recordings. Yeah, I've been assimilated <laughs> to the Borg. All right. Well, to introduce John chapter twelve, I got, I got one word. One word. That word is party. It's party. It's party. So John chapter twelve is we're we're back on stuff that like eluded me growing up. Like when I was reading this, it was like I was reading this chapter for the first. I got time. a question for you. Okay. Have you even read the Have you even read the Bible? No. Because it seems like every week, no. No. <laughs> every week there's something new that's revealed. Really not. I'm reading it with new <laughs> eyes uh, when it comes to studying for this podcast. It seems because I, I swear every single time that I'm reading through it, like taking notes, thinking like, okay, I'm going to talk about this on the podcast. Going to talk back this. Oh, I feel like Tanner's going to talk a lot back th- uh, about that. So I'm going to kind of uh, chill on that subject and go here. Like as I'm studying, like again, I just feel like I'm looking at it with new eyes. Like as I was reading this, I was sitting here going, hold up. Lazarus is mentioned again. <laughs> like, I feel like such an idiot because I'm I'm sitting here reading through the scripture and I'll uh, read a passage over here in just a second. Um, but Lazarus is at his raised from the dead party, more or less. Imagine being Lazarus in this situation, just chilling, being like, "Man, you guys would not believe the day I've had." <laughs> like, yeah. Well, that's, I just, we also want to. I want to point out too that we got the timeline timeline wrong oh, last yeah, week. That's right. So I I always thought. To, I mean, here I'm learning something new too. We're always learning something new, but like I always thought that the this party, which we talked about Martha and Mary, the situation there, I thought it came before Lazarus' death and re- resurrection. I thought it was before, but now we know with the context that John has placed before us, that's actually after it's, you know, his coming back home party type deal thing. Yeah. So, And just to set things up, uh, the, verse two, uh, the first two verses in John chapter 12 read, six days before the Passover, so John's given a, a timeline of when this is taking place, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And I'll tell you why I think I've never really uh, dedicated that information memory, that this was Lazarus's, congrats, bud, you're not dead anymore party. Because 
the scripture that's coming up right after that is a very heavily preached on uh, passage passage of scripture with Mary and Martha. Exactly. Yeah. And to the best of my knowledge, ninety nine percent of the sermons that focus on that scripture don't include verses one and two. No. Let me ask you a question, so that's Mason. My I, I've got a question because I've had I've struggled with this with like finding sermons to preach and the Lord leading me on down a re- direction. Like I try to find sermons that scripture is very elusive. Like there's, I want to find stories that no one has ever heard about or thought about. Cause it seems like I, I don't feel led to preach a sermon over Mary and Martha cause it's been preached a thousand times. What's your opinion on that? Cause I mean, it's good stuff, good quality stuff. And you know, you need, we all need to allow the Lord to lead where you need to lead. But sometimes I find myself looking for the obscure stories over the preached upon a thousand times stories like Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Oh yeah, I have yet to preach John 3.16. What? Neither have I. I will stay away from it until the Lord says, no, you're doing it. Yeah. But I mean, the bigger ones that a lot of people really try to emphasize a lot, uh, the Beatitudes, um, never done that. I think I might have done a Wednesday night lesson about Mm -hmm. it, like when I was probably 15 or something. I don't know. Um, but, I mean, as far as big stories go, I think I've done I've done Luke 15. That's probably the biggest one that a lot of people do. And I've done that. Uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. But actually, when I did that, you know, everybody wants to focus on the prodigal son coming back. My sermon was actually focused on more so the coin and the sheep. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, while I, while I had a popular scripture uh, passage, I focused on the less preached portions of it. And I think that's what you were saying too. Like if I'm going to take something like that, I want to do, I want to talk about or look at things in a different way than 99% of the people that preach that passage do. And I think that's one thing with these John deep dives is that it's pointing things out to me that like, huh, there's something, there's some kind of significance. Like last week we talked about the twin Thomas and Mason threw a a, a truth bomb that I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and say that that is accurate. And that's going to be something I subscribe to. That's the reason why Judas kissed Jesus was because Thomas looked like Jesus and he just wanted to make sure, hey, it's the dude right there. So that, I'm just going to go ahead and subscribe to that. Until proven wrong. Proving wrong, yep. So here, here Lazarus is. He's partying up with uh, Jesus and his boys and Mary and Martha. And it's not mentioned in John, but it's actually not at Lazarus' house. But in uh, Matthew and Mark, it's made mention it's Simon the leper's house. So it's another dude that's been healed from Jesus. So it's like a whole community in Bethany of people that's been uh, seeing, seeing Jesus do these miracles. And I was actually kind of curious. Well, I mean, this is just weird speculation, but there's no kind of historical evidence. So is, is, do you think that Simon the leper is uh, a friend of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, or some scholars have said that uh, Simon the leper is actually Martha's husband. I don't know. It's just kind of speculation. But yet, either war, it's a whole community of uh, in the village that is, is surrounded by Jesus in, in these miracles. Did you say scholarly record? Scholarly. I may have said scholar. I know scholars have stated. I don't know if I said scholar records because there's no records, but yet scholar. Uh, conjecture or just thinking because it's like well why is it at this leper's house it could be just a friend you know hey come party at my house I mean I don't possess the expertise to like say well neither do I but I don't think there's any I don't think there's any records of them being married quote unquote but yet there's all speculation that's what I'm going at is it scholar scholarly speculation 
versus scholarly evidence. I would imagine they were friends. Yeah. Or I mean, well, I mean, just, you gotta be friends to be married if they're married. But yeah, yet, well, I, I, mean, I mean, in terms of just yeah. uh, Simon the Leper's relationship with the crew, and I mean, goodness, knowing Jesus could have just been like, "Hey, you want to host this group?" And then no. Simon the Leper being like, "Hey, that's that Jesus dude." Either sure. way, I don't think it really matters. I don't think it really matters if it's if they're married or not. But I think yeah. what John is really focusing on here is that it's, as you said earlier, that it's six days before uh, the Passover, which is six days before his you know accusation, death, and burial. Yeah. And it shows that I think it's important that e- even when Jesus knows what's about to happen, like a week before, that he's having fun and having a good time and is on the side of life with, with partying with Lazarus and celebrating Lazarus in this six days before he knows that he's about to die. So I think that knowing that this is going to occur, he's still dining with his friends. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. So now that, uh, so that's verses one and two, we've got a good bit of discussion of that. So now, now let's hit some scripture that, um, as I believe I've already stated, has been preached on quite a bit. So I look forward to seeing what the two preachers in our group Uh, get out of this text. So verses 3 through 8 read, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag he used to keep himself uh, to what was put into it, used, used to help himself to what was put into it, sorry. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Sorry, I'm getting tripped up in that scripture. I, when I initially did this read-through, it was in a different version, so like my brain's expecting different words as I'm reading it now, so yeah. It happens. Was it the William Tyndale version? Because oh, no, I, I switched from ASV to ESV because okay. I needed them red words. It just makes my life easier. <laughs> well, I just want to point out that today, I don't know if you all know, but today is the anniversary of his martyrdom, which he was the first uh, guy to translate Greek into English in pre-1611-15. Oh, was that the guy you posted on Facebook yeah. earlier? Repeat his name. William Tyndale. Tyndale. I can't remember pronounce it right, but he was a English dude that got burnt to stake because he translated the Bible into English. Nice. 400 and something years ago. Fun fact. Fun fact. Anyways, back to Martha and Mary and Judas and this thing that Mary decided to do. Yeah, Tanner, I like your notes here, and I'll let you uh, expand on them if you want. Um, you have kind of w- what what really took place within these uh, several, several verses here, some customs that were kind of broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, because even though I've heard multiple sermons on this scripture, like I don't recall any of these points ever being brought uh, brought up. Like it was news to me as I was reading your notes here. So first mm-hmm. off, you had a Jewish custom on the entry for a guest. Could you go into that? Yeah. So in Jewish first century culture, it was customary, say if I went over to y'all's house, that, okay, let's say that we go over to your, your house, Mason, your brother being probably the youngest of the whole, whole thing, you know, let's just say he's a servant, you know. So when a guest came into the house, their feet would be automatically washed because guess what? They didn't have closed toed shoes. They had sandals. So their feet are going to be dirty. It's dusty. And so basically it's a sign of service. The lowest servant would wash their feet with water. And then they would also get some oil and just dab a little bit on their head for like uh, ointment. You know, I guess kind of like some kind of perfumed, you know, kind of like a 
a good deodorant top deal thing, you know, to make them smell nice. So that was the customary thing if you had a guest, especially if you had someone like of prestigious quality of Jesus coming in the room. So he probably already at this time when this party's party started, he's probably already had his feet washed and his head anointed with oil already in the classic Jewish tradition sense. Um, so that was the kind of the, the normal custom at that time for special guests and a special prestigious guest at that time. So how did Mary break those customs? So Mary, what she did, she says she took what she had. She took the best thing that she had. And in verse 3, it says that she took expensive uh, nard. Uh, and nard, I think I actually looked at some uh, some reports that there's this isn't really an oil that is specific. So it could be anything. It could be olive oil. It could be something. But yet it was very, very expensive. So it was more likely it's probably, probably not olive oil because it said 300 denarii. I think Judas pointed out it's 300 denarii. And that is a year's wage of a normal, uh, I guess, a laborer, a year's wage for a laborer. And to me, that's a lot of money. I mean, I'm considering myself a laborer in that sense, and that's a lot of money for just some perfume, some oil. So this is some special significance here of this. This is important. So in my sense, this is very, this is the best that she's got. Okay. And I I don't know, I, I have to go back and look, but yeah, I guess if you're going to anoint just a dab of oil on your guest coming straight out of the gate, sometimes you just don't give your best. You know, sometimes you just give a little bit of dab, a little bit of dab. But Mary broke the culture here that uh, she took the best that she got and she went down to her feet and washed his feet with the whole ointment instead of water. Because water is just a dime a dozen. You can get that stream. She took the oil itself, poured it over Jesus' feet and dried it with her hair. And I was kind of curious. I was like, well, why in the world would she use her hair? Instead of like a towel or something, I mean, that just seems kind of just odd, you know. So normally, women keep their hairs binded up, put a, put them up, and stuff like that. And it was very taboo for women to put down their hair because that is a sign of uh, I don't want to say weakness, but a sign of revealing themselves. It's a you know a uh, vulnerable statement that you know you're 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 being you're you're making yourself vulnerable. And so what she's doing here is that she's getting down to the feet of Jesus, taking this very expensive oil, the best thing that she's got, and she's anointing him basically, anointing him with this oil and washing her his feet with the best that she's got and using her hair and revealing herself to him with true humility to basically worship him. And I think it's important to contrast this service with her sister's service as well. So let's go back to Martha, though. Let's go back to Martha a little bit. Because Martha, in verse 2, she was probably using her best as well. In verse 2, it states that, uh, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining in the table with him. And it's not really made mention in this, in John but yet it's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But yet it there's a there's a kind of a dialogue and a disagreement that Mary and Martha have. But Martha, if she's the serve, if she's the, the the hostess of this place, she's probably giving the best china out of her china cabinet. You know, she's not getting the paper plates. And I'm getting this from Seth, uh, Pastor Seth's sermon from last week is phenomenal, but like a lot of times that we we end up uh, uh, giving paper plates to, to 
to serve God. And a lot of times we just use water to serve God. And what Martha, even though she was doing her best, she was doing all this stuff. And I think, I think 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21 and 20 and 21 uh, states it really well that Paul, he says, now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, which I think that if Martha had this in her house, she would be using golden and silver plates and cups to give the best that she had for Christ at this party. Um, but there are also wood and clay, some for honorable and use and some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be special. He'll be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master prepared for every good work. So Mary and Martha's intention was both to serve God, Christ the best that they had, but Martha ended up being misguided and misplaced her intention to more of serving the party and doing the best for the party than doing it for Christ. And that's what Mary is doing a little bit differently here, is that she is basically opening up herself to Christ, letting her hair down, dropping her guard in front of Christ and saying, you know, I'm going to give you everything I have, the most expensive thing, what I've got, and I'm going to hear, I'm going to worship you, you know, and there's nothing wrong with serving just the way that Martha was, but yet there, there needs to be a balance between serving and worshiping, you know, and I think that you can serve while worship, but we can't just be so focused around the service aspect. You know, we can't just completely serve and serve, serve, serve all the time and forget that we need to be served as well and be fed as well. So I think this is also interesting, too. And let me let me ask you all's opinion on this. But like in the very last one, when Mary does anoint Jesus feet, it says it makes the comment. And it, and I'm not trying to, you know, uh, find something where nothing is really at. But yet it says the fragrance filled the house. And, you know, I, I find that almost every word in Scripture is important. But do you think there's this kind of, some kind of significance between that phrase of, con, of of text that after she anointed Jesus' feet, the, the anointment filled the whole house? Which, I mean, obviously, very expensive oil, a year's wage, and you pour it all on Jesus' feet. It's going to, you know, illuminate your nostrils. I would say if there is any importance to it, it would just be that... Since it like since that smell would fill the whole house, probably whoever was in the house would know what had happened, even without seeing it. Mm-hmm. They would know that wait, like this, the smell is coming from something that seems familiar. And for me to smell it on the other side of the house I means somebody spilt it, or it somebody's just poured it all out somewhere. And so it's if I'm if I'm trying to think about it, if people recognize the smell of this. And I mean, Judas, as we'll see here in a second, he knew how much it cost. So I'm going to assume it might be a dangerous thing to do. But if Judas knew how much this thing cost, I'm going to assume other people did too. Mm-hmm. And so if people are starting to smell it throughout the whole house, it might bring some attention to be like, where is that coming from? What happened? What about like the, the nostalgia smell of stuff? Like, have you all ever smelled something before? It's like, man, that brings me back to a certain time because your olfactories yeah. is very strong with your, you know, memory mm-hmm. and your brain. And so every time, I don't know why, but like, I love the smell of lavender and I think I remember, you know, growing up and I think I remember kindergarten and the smell of lavender was, I think Miss Ford used lavender scented stuff and like, it brings me back to kindergarten mm-hmm. and I loved kindergarten. And so I think that God can use even your smell to bring back memories. And so that's, I think, one thing that this could be a thing here, that this smell to the people in this room, if they smelt this perfume again in the future till the days that they're, they're living, they could like jog a memory back of like, man, that was true service, what Mary did. You know, I remember that oil. I remember that smell. 
But then also, I looked up a verse here. Mark 14, verse 9, says, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So here Mark's telling the story of Lazarus and Mary doing this service. Jesus says in Mark, which I'm, it doesn't make mention here in, in John, but yep, yeah, Mark place like you know this is like the same thing of this the fragrance of this oil filling the whole house should be the same thing with the gospel the fragrance of the gospel spreading out through the whole world that it should reach every part of the room you know and i think that's 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 interesting if we truly serve like mary is giving the best being vulnerable to the point of giving humility to christ then the gospel should permeate through our lives and it should be a strong scent to contrast her good service you do have uh, Judas being a massive hypocrite, what a jerk, trying trying to take that that fake moral high ground. Yeah, doesn't go too well in his favor. Him saying, like, I like that he does. Well, I say I like. I just find it interesting that he goes so far as to say, "Hey, let's uh, let's give it to the poor." I mean, scripture makes it clear. Like he he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he probably would take some of the money for himself. So, good good old Judas. Um, but then going along with that, um, Jesus responds saying, Le- leave her alone, um, let her keep it for the day of my burial. So again, being very upfront about like what, what's, what's on the roadmap, like what, what's, what's coming up, which again, that uh, verse one made it pretty clear, like we're uh, pretty close in terms of days. Yeah. To when Jesus well, the, re- the reader, which is us, we kind of know what's, what's about to happen. So I'm wondering, it'd be kind of interesting if I could remove all kind of like if I could remove a, like a, a piece of my lobe of my brain of remembering of what's about to happen in this whole text. And if John could, if I could remove what John is like, Hey, this is about to happen. Basically it's like, Hey, Jesus is going to betrayal. I wonder if I could see the, the cues and the keys and stuff like that of like, Hey, this dude's about to do something rough or is it completely hidden? You know what I mean? So it's like, is could I, could I pick up on the, the context clues that John is, is laying out here if I didn't know anything about Judas or if I didn't know anything about these things? So it'd be kind of interesting, which obviously if the disciples themselves that, that was with Judas during Jesus' ministry three years, they can't figure out that he was going to be deceptive. Yeah, I mean... I don't think I could either. It's another hindsight as 2020 thing, because, I mean, the Scripture doesn't really do Judas any favors. He's not really seen favorably throughout oh, yeah, Scripture. Oh, yeah, they were very bitter with him afterwards. <laughs> and, uh, oh, every time, yeah. Every time he's mentioned, it's See, Judas the betrayer, the yeah. betrayer, the traitor. Uh, yeah. Like, right. But evidently he had his crap together enough prior to that that, I don't know, they didn't kick him out, so there's that. I mean, goodness, they had a Simon the Zealot and Matthew were able to get along. Uh, Matthew being... Roman, so I mean, a zealot and a Roman aren't going to get along too well, especially a, a Roman tax collector. So I mean, there was obviously conflict uh, within the disciples. So I mean, surely Judas probably rubbed elbows the wrong way with mm-hmm. disciples in the past. But I mean, I guess it was just nothing out of the ordinary with that uh, yeah. motley crew. Peter just wanted to go fishing. <laughs> That's what he wanted. He <laughs> just wanted to be buddy buddies with Jesus, and everybody else just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter was just one of your your nominal Christians. Just wanted to go fishing on Sunday, right? <laughs> but so here you got Judas. You know, you've got two servants, uh, Mary and Martha. But then you've got one false servant, Judas. And verses four through six, uh, you know, it, it makes it, John makes it very clear that you know this is the betrayer. You know, just want to point this out, guys, that this is the dude that's going to betray Christ. And it presents also that you know his concern for the poor was actually false. 
You know, it points out a lie. And I'm curious, like, do you think that they somewhat knew about it or did like, how did they figure out this? Because it says it, it, like it kept it, this evidence was kept secret because he it was like, I actually I think I looked up the Greek for like uh, for take that when Judas was taking, it's not like a one or two time things like it was a habitual. So when the take, the Greek was habitual. And so it was something that was like reoccurring, like it was like a temptation for him. So it was like a constant thieving of him. So it must have been like greed was his influence to the portrayal of Christ almost. Here's my question though. Like one, how do they not realize it? Like, cause he's traveling with them at all times. And two, where's he got to put it? <laughs> I mean, he's got some big pockets. Yeah, so, I mean, one, he's traveling with them at all times. And it says in uh, verse 6 that he has, he's, he's in charge of the money. He's in charge of the money box. So, okay, does he have his own little money box or something that he just picks it up and puts it in his box? or the false bottom. Yeah, I, like, I just, I don't understand that part. Anyway, I don't know. Maybe it's just my mind wanting to wonder and things about things. I mean, it's probably not that important now, but I mean, I'm sure it was very important then, you know, when yeah. they're traveling and having to buy food and stuff like that. But so, I th- yeah, I think the, the, I think it's interesting, the contrast here, and this, this goes back to, you know, the, sim- the, it's, this thing's been preached a thousand times, but yet the simple contrast between Mary's selfless love and Judas's evil betrayal, Judas shows that sinfulness loves the, dar- the darkness because it does make mention that he's stolen secret. And guess what? He met the Pharisees in secret, and then he betrays Jesus out in the darkness. And so it's like he doesn't want his sin to be revealed, almost, you know. And so if it was found out, let's just say, let's just say the disciples did find out that he was stealing. Do you think that that could have maybe deterred him from betraying Jesus? This is hypothetical, because Jesus, I don't think Jesus needed Judas to be crucified. It would have happened one way or another. But yet Judas was just another catalyst, another, you know, pebble in the... Could you repeat the question? I want to make sure I got your phrasing right. Well, let's just say that Judas did get caught stealing, yeah. you know, from Mary or, or whoever. And they may have had some kind of like intervention or something like that. Do you think that could have deterred... If, if that, could that deter him away from actually going and betraying Jesus? Because my point is, is that I don't think that it, Judas... I don't think Jesus needed Judas to be crucified because Jesus would have been crucified one way or another with or without Judas. I think it could deter him, but like you said, Jesus didn't need Judas to have his plan go as planned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A holy contingency would have been put in place. I have heard a lot of people say otherwise. Yeah, which, yeah, because I've heard... I'll fight him. I agree with it. I'll fight him. I think Judas had just as much free will as I do. So I think he he could have. I think he 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 could have chosen. <laughs> what are you giggling about? No, I definitely agree with that. But there is a lot of people that would not. Yeah, uh, I know. There's a lot of people that would say that you know Judas was a, a vessel made for destruction. You know that he was made to uh, to betray and kill himself. Is there any scriptural bound for that? I don't think so. I don't think because to me there's regret. For scriptural basis. Because he because he obviously he kills himself. And to me, that shows regret. Yeah. So if he was a vessel made for destruction, there well, would be regret. Well, it even said he regretted it before then. Yeah, he he gave but, he casted the, the silver pieces down and said, "I don't want this." So I mean, he he regretted what he did. So to me, that shows remorse and shows a moral compass. So he he chose to do it, and he chose to kill himself afterwards. So, 
Spoiler alerts for yeah, spoiler alert. But yeah, to me that sounds like that gives me the, uh, a, a picture that he has free will, just like me. So some people say that he was possessed by the, by the devil, and, and no, okay. So hold up, but, well, hold up. <laughs> Here we go. Here, hold up. We ain't there yet, but I'm if I'm not mistaken, I'm 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 not when we st- when we do the when we do these John studies, I'm not pre-reading, but yeah, I think I do remember distinctly at the Passover supper, the last supper that Jesus has with the disciples, Jesus does make a comment is that uh, about the betrayer. And he made a comment saying that when you leave, the devil will, will enter into you. And in a sense that there will be like a coming in of the devil. And so some people say that, that when Judas left, that was a type of possession. Like he denied Christ, like, okay, I'm leaving and accepted the devil into his life and had some form of possession. That's what I remember. We'll get there when we get there. But that, that's what some people say, that he was possessed by the devil to betray him. But yeah, I don't think he needed the devil to betray him. I think he just needed his own greed. Yeah. That's my own, that's my uh, knee-jerk reaction right now. Until we get there, that's what I'm going to say. Well, the next uh, little section, verses 9 through 11, we get to see just how big of a jerk bag the, the high priests are, or high priest is. Uh, multiple. Anyway, verses 9 through 11 read, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests, okay, plural, made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews that were going away and believing in Jesus or many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Goodness, if I can read. So that's, um, I don't know, that's just so heartbreaking. I mean, I know I've said this before, and at the risk of beating a dead horse and sound like a broken record 30 times over, it just, it breaks my heart to see just this blatant, like, you know that these high priests know that there's something special here, but they, they truthfully just care about their position and power so much, they're like, who cares? We need to kill whoever we need to kill, silence whoever we need to silence, to, to keep our, our political and monetary power. Like, mm-hmm. just the amount of greed that takes place there is just, I mean, it, it's breathtaking. Because, I mean, they're witnessing miracles here, right and left. The Pharisees, Sadducees, these, these high priests, like, they are being faced with irrefutable proof that, at the very least, there is a prophet among them. And they're choosing death and silencing over, I don't know, maybe reveling in, well, reveling, that's not the right word, but... I don't know, just letting it happen. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's just, it, it's, it's shocking. Well, and I think it was interesting to point out that, you know, most of the high priests were Sadducees. And the Sadducees, uh, I got here in my notes that, you know, their theological beliefs denied the resurrection. And so to say that Lazarus rose again is a threat upon their theology. Yeah. yeah. And I can see this with, with even in today within our own camp, which all throughout history you have people that would interpret or see scripture in a different light and they're automatically almost like we got to put a death sentence on them i mean the anabaptists were one that i think that because they have more of a pacifistic view of scripture that they were you know persecuted and killed because of that view Uh, i think one that i just made mention earlier was you know uh, william tyndale because he translated the bible from greek to english guess what he was executed and I think one of the I'm going to point out today, within our camp, even though we can't burn people at the stakes no more, disappointment that the the uh, 
Calvin, the Calvinism and the Arminianism debate between there, between, you know, free will and uh, total depravity type deal thing, the five points of Calvinism and Arminians and stuff like that. So that's almost like a type of like our theological point is superior than yours. And so we're basically going to debate you at the stake with fire of our breath. But either way, because of these 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 things that Jesus did, the miracles, that people started to follow Jesus because of Lazarus. You know, it says that it's not Lazarus himself, but yet the witness that because Lazarus is now from the dead, that leads people to believe in Christ. So another preaching point, another application is that people shouldn't smell the dead on you. You know, people should see it's like, well, he's a little bit different now. Do you think like there might be some kind of glow? It's like, I thought he was dead. You know, or it's like the same thing. It's like you see Mason and, you know, but say that 10 years ago you were a meth head, you know, even though you're only 19 or 20. Yeah, that'd have been. So let's just, let's just say. <laughs> Start them young. <laughs> Start them young. You know, and there, and let's, and you found Christ and you, you, and the Lord led you away from meth and like you'd be a completely different person. And people say, man, I thought there's something different about him. You know, so it got people talking because of Christ. It led you as a witness to be a witness for Christ so that people can talk about Christ through your new resurrection of life. And this is what, you know, Paul talks about all the time, the resurrection of the spiritual life, you know, and this should be something evident that people see, you know, taking off the old man and putting on the new. And I think this is what Jesus physically did here with Lazarus. He took off the old man and put on the new uh, for Lazarus on a physical sense. Yeah, so next up, um, in the next bunch of scripture, uh, won't read through it right now, uh, might, might not. You have Jesus coming in on the donkey, and you have that, that image that's been seared in my brain personally since, uh, since I was a small child. I mean, it's one of those stories that's uh, taught to you quite a mm-hmm. bit, especially around Easter. Um, but one thing I, I hadn't realized until I'd read your notes on it, Tanner, are the palm branches that they, that, that they come out with. Yeah. Um, just to read the scripture, verse 13 says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Uh, that being a, an Old Testament reference. Mm-hmm. Those palm branches, your notes say, are a sign of Jewish nationalism since the time of the Maccabees, uh, indicating that people saw Jesus only as a political and national sa- savior. They still yeah. didn't have this upside down kingdom figured out, which that, that much I'd, I'd figured out by now from the previous chapters we've been reading. Like, I mean, there's that constant misunderstanding of the kind yeah. of king that Jesus is going to be. But even now, like when they're bringing out those palm branches, I always read into that and was taught that growing up. I kind of understood that as, Oh, Hey, people are, are finally giving Jesus the respect that he deserves. Like finally he's, He's getting the, the king's welcome. Jesus is, I mean, this is why he gets crucified, because people start following for the right reasons, right? Wrong. Even when people, like, seem to be on that same page, they're on the same page of the wrong book. Yeah. Which, I mean, they're seeing Jesus as a uh, revolutionary man to, to get them out of the bondage of Rome instead of the bondage of sin. And so I, it's I also, it, the, the whole situation of uh, Jesus' triumphal in, entry is just amazing to me. So at, with the Passover, we know that it's the Passover's here. Okay. And the Passover is a festival of, you know, the, the removing of sins. This goes back to the Exodus, you know, uh, where the 10 plagues came upon Israel to, for the Israelites to be uh, released from Egypt. And the Passover is where the death of the firstborn if you didn't have the blood applied over the post, would come over. So this is where the celebration is. There's a lot of foreshadowing here from the Exodus Passover to the more 
present Passover of Jesus here. So the Passover, I think it's interesting that there's thousands of people here celebrating the Passover and celebrating this festival. And uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, he took a census one year, and he found that there were 256,000 lambs slaughtered one year, he calculated. And this was like a couple years after Christ. So it's not too long. So we're not going to... It's pretty accurate. So here in Exodus, or back in Exodus chapter 12, it, 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 there's instructions that the lamb should stay with the family for three days before the sacrifice. I didn't know that. So I was like, well, that's interesting. So, so the lamb has to be with the family for three days. So I'm wondering if it's like, is that kind of more of like a building a relationship or something like that, kind of like a pet? Or is that something that like protection? I'm not sure. But yet in this time when Jesus is going into the, to the city, there's thousands of families with lambs over their shoulders and carrying lambs for the sacrifice, lambs being brought to the sacrifice for the removing of their sins. And here Jesus is going into the city also as a lamb, but not being drawn to the lamb to the slaughter, but willingly going to the slaughter for the sacrificing of sin for humanity. So I think that's an interesting picture if we look at the whole thing of like, Jesus is amongst the lambs of the lambs, that he is the lamb of God going to the, the ultimate slaughter for sure. And I think that's that's powerful. I also want to point out Hosanna. We've we've heard the, the term Hosanna, the, and, then, and this means save now. And so this goes back to the, the nationalism that they're wanting Jesus to, to rescue them from the Roman oppression. You know, this was like, save us now, save us now. And the thing is, they're not wrong in the sense because Jesus is about to save them now if they only believe and, and trust in him at that time. And it goes back to the Psalm uh, 118, 25, and 26. And, and I think this is a, a type of praise that we should still sing today is like, you know, you know, save us now, you know, and he saves us from their sins. But yet going to what you said is that they had the correct answer, but yet their view was completely upside down to what Jesus was doing. Yeah. And it seems that even though we're able to look at this and uh, make that observation that they're getting excited for the wrong reasons, it doesn't seem that the Pharisees got that message. Um, Cause I mean, correct me if I'm reading this incorrectly, but Verse 19 says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after them, gone after him, him being Jesus. Yeah. So it seems that like the Pharisees are under this uh, false impression that like Jesus is succeeding in his goals despite their best efforts. Like they seem to be sitting here thinking, Oh crap, we're, we're losing them. We're losing them. Which I mean, technically they are, but again, they're, they're losing for the wrong reasons, which I guess, in all fairness, that might not make a difference to Pharisees. As long as they're losing their control, then they're losing. So, yeah, fair enough. So what about the donkey? What about the donkey? Do you think that there's a significance of the donkey? I mean, do you just want me to read verse 15? Well, go ahead. Yeah, read verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Yeah. So that is a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And it basically says, you know, uh, Zechariah 9, verse 9, it makes mention that he is just, he is having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey. And I think this does two things. I think this, this Jesus riding on a donkey shows two things. It fulfills the prophecy, like you said, but then also it shows a character of his kingdom that he is about to bring upon earth that is not a kingdom uh, with authoritative royalty. It's like, I'm coming to released you from Roman oppression, but it's a, he rides on humility. Mm-hmm. Instead of riding on a white horse, bouncing up and down of, of, of royalty, which he is royal. 
He is. He's the son of God. He's the royalist of the royal. Um, but yet he comes on a donkey showing his humility. He's like, I'm here to do this differently. I'm here to defeat the great enemy differently. Mm-hmm. Your, 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 your view of the enemy is not, the enemy is not who you think it is. So here with the festival, uh, some Greeks decide to show up and they want to meet Jesus. And so it's kind of unknown but here in verses 20 uh, through 22. It doesn't really make mention of like the, the significance of these Greeks. It just says, you know, they're up here uh, for the festival. We don't know if they're converts to Judaism or if they're just God fears or just traveling through, if they're just seeking, you know, adventures or whatnots. But yet these Greeks have obviously heard of Jesus and his miracles. And so, it's like a hearing game here. It's like they tell Philip, Philip tells Andrew and Philip and Andrew go tell, tell Jesus. And here Philip and Andrew are taking these Greeks up to Jesus to talk with him. So now we have Greeks and probably other followers, Jewish followers. So now we have a mix of people, a goulash, jambalaya in front of Jesus. And he's about to serve them some mighty good dish. Um, another Sorry. valuable bit of information that I got out of um, this little script. Did you, did you get up to verse 22 is where you're at? Yes. Okay. Well, verse 23, uh, you have Jesus finally saying that his hour has come, uh, which that's a, an, um, an awesome departure um, from what he's been saying so far. So we've heard multiple times, uh, at least twice so far, just in the, in the book of John, where he says that my, my time has not yet come. Like mm-hmm. it, it's not time for me to be out in the open too much because the then things won't be according to plan. It's not my my time has not yet come. But now now he's saying um, verse twenty three says and Jesus answered them the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly truly I say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone. But if it dies it bears much fruit. Get a little bit of foreshadowing there. Mm-hmm. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So my uh, gut reaction slash question uh, regarding this bit that that Jesus gave. He says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What does it mean to hate your life in that context? Because this... This makes me think of how uh, some people kind of twist these sorts of scriptures to mean that you need to alienate yourself, mm-hmm. that that you need to forego all worldly things, almost to the point of like being a monk. Yeah, asceticism to the max. Yeah. So, does this scripture not encourage that? I don't think it does, obviously. But I want I want to introduce the the food for thought there. Like, how how do we approach this to people that read that and just take it face value that Jesus is saying, isolate yourselves from the world, mm-hmm. uh, get get away from people that don't have anything to do with me, just just huddle yourselves up in your closet, read my word, and and die alone, and you'll be all right. Like, what? How how do we res- respond to those people? I think it boils down to the the root of all sin, which is pride, I believe. And so, if you love yourself more than you love others, then that's going to inherently allow you to be number one within your life. You know, and, and the whole thing that, that Christ tries to structure within his teachings is that God is number one in your life. People 
or number two, love your neighbor as thyself. Because I think the Pharisees, they challenge Christ. It's like, don't you know the commandments? What's the greatest commandment? You know, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, to love the Lord God with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all thy strength. That's the first thing you need to do. Second, he says, is just like the first, is love thy neighbor as thyself. And he doesn't go any further. He says, those are two greatest commandments. And so Jesus here, he's basically saying, he's reverting back. I think he's kind of thinking upon that when he's saying this statement. is like, you know, if you love God with everything that you've got, then inherently that will that will help you uh, and make you love your neighbor as yourself. But a lot of times we like to get that mixed up. We like to put ourselves first, number one, to love myself with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love thy neighbor only when it benefits me. And don't even make mention of God. I, I don't love God. So a lot of times we, we get that whole script of the greatest commandment that Christ presents completely backwards. And so when Christ says here is that, you know, if you love yourself, then you, you will lose your life. So when we get that flipped, then we don't love God and we don't love people. We just love ourselves. We love our life. Pride comes before the fall. <laughs> Sorry. That, 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 was a, that was a cliche thing to say. If you have twice the pride, you have double the fall. Double the fall. So I think Jesus here is double of, doubling up on humility, saying, you know, if you lose your life, as I'm about to do, basically, then you will gain it. Yeah, agreed. Which it sounds like a, a paradox, which it is. You know, it's a paradox of saying, it's like, okay, how can I give something up and gain something? Yeah, which the language that Jesus is using uh, harks back in my opinion, to when he's like um, saying, if your hand causes you to sin, it's better to cut it off than have your whole body be cast yeah. uh, into the pits of hell. Because, I mean, that is a true statement, yeah, but is he also demanding us to go and start cutting off limbs? Mm -hmm. um, maybe not. Maybe don't do that. He he calls for extreme. He yeah. calls for extremeness. Yeah, he, I mean, he's turning heads yeah. is what he's doing. Like, yeah. he's not saying things that aren't true. It's just it's stuff that when you hear, you're like, hold up, wait, what? That doesn't sound reasonable. Mm -hmm. what, what do you mean by that? Uh, it's the meaning behind it that you're uh, supposed to get there. Because I mean, hating your life obviously we're not we're not called to hate our life. Full stop. I mean, life is something to be enjoyed. I mean, God allows us to live in this world for a purpose, and we and there much joy can be found in that, especially if you're living according to His will. Uh, but He's really what He's doing is lashing out at these like Sadducees that are so obsessed with the the earthly success that they're getting in this life that they're not they're not thinking eternally they're thinking how can I make the most of the time that I have left on this earth to to keep my influence to keep my power I'm going to do whatever it takes to to keep that because I'm number one um, and number one is what matters most uh, that's that's kind of what I'm getting he's he's kind of attacking that mentality and rightfully so and uh, so in verse twenty six. Uh, I think it's interesting that he says that if anyone serves me, which it's interesting that Mary and Martha both have, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and which they are. A lot of these disciples are. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So it's 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 equating honor and almost a special recognition upon that individual that does serve Christ and follows Christ. So it sounds like. Correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like service and following is kind of, they kind of go hand in hand together. Like you can't serve Christ and not follow Christ. And you can't follow Christ without service. So it has to be both hand in hand, it sounds like. Am I just, it, it, what, what do you think? Well, I mean, it just goes along with the general theme of, uh, of being Christ-like. I mean, Christ 
himself was just, he was the world's greatest servant like his whole thing is is serving so to serve the servant like that again it's just him kind of turning um those sorts of dynamics on their head mm-hmm. like how how do you follow someone really like he's it's a it's not worth challenge out there he's making people think about like how do i follow this guy what yeah. what's it, I mean, it's a call to arms uh, in a sense so with this statement that jesus makes here i think it's 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 jogging his not in his memory, but it's 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 triggering triggering his emotions because we know that Jesus is the ultimate servant, and he is also the one that is ultimately following the Father and is following the Father's will, and so it continues in verse twenty seven. He says, "Now my troll is trub- my soul is troubled. What should I say, Father? Save me from this hour, but that is why I come to this hour." And I think that's a powerful statement. Is like it shows that like Jesus knew what was about to happen, but yet it, it still troubled him. So it's just like, man, like the weight that's on his life that he's about to be crucified. He's about to be betrayed by one of his followers. He's about to have sin of all of the earth and all of humanity placed upon his shoulders. And he says, I, I bet he's actually thought, you know, it, it goes kind of quits with the, the garden prayers. Like, you know, Lord, if it's your will, let, allow this cup to pass from me. You know, if it's your will, allow it to pass from me because this is going to be a bitter cup to drink. This is going to this is going to suck, dude. But he says, you know, but this hour has come. I know why I come to this hour. And so Jesus knows what's about to happen. And he says in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And in some manuscripts, it says, God, Father, glorify your son. So some manuscripts say glorify your name and glorify your son. And so both are inherently the same by saying when Jesus is lifted up and placed on the cross and is dying, it both gives Christ glory and it both gives God glory. And I think that's a poor distinction because there's because we need to recognize the glory of Christ for giving himself and the and the sacrifice that he made and also glorify God for allowing his son to come down. Yeah, that and it's pretty stinking cool that, I mean, this is another thing that, like, it had not uh, rested in my mind. So when I was reading this, I was like, wait, that happened? Um, Jesus calling upon God to to speak. Like that, I don't know, that that just struck me as intense. And then you have, um, verse 28 says, Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And a little bit of input that I'll give on that, um, because whenever I see the word angel pop up in scripture, my brain shoots on over to Elohim. So I had to go on a quest and figure out what does angel mean in the scripture. So I went back to the Greek and did me a lot of like looking at symbols, me like, oh crap, what's, what's, that, what's that Greek letter mean? So I, I did me some some biblical translation, folks. This, this is the most work I've done in a long time. <laughs> and the conclusion that, I, that I've reached, this is, this is not Elohim. This is a messenger of the Lord, uh, specifically the, the term angelos, angelos, however you say it in Greek, not, not a Greek scholar, so I don't know the pronunciations, um, but that is um, kind of the Greek version of the Hebrew malak, which also means messenger of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So, this, so this is not a uh, um, Elohim type being, and I mean, if the whole Elohim discussion mm-hmm. is, is an entirely different thing. Um, but for those that are interested, I, I want to, I want to rebuttal. Really? Really? Okay. I want to rebuttal. Okay, I, I thought I did some. Cause I, th- I th- well, no, I mean, I agree with your statement. I think you're accurate, but yeah, I think the people are thinking that it's just a messenger, but yeah, I think this is an audible voice from God himself. Cause it says that the people, 
it heard it rolled like thunder, and people said that this was that that this was a voice as a, of an angel. But yet here, what does it say in verse twenty eight? That this voice, uh, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I, I, you know, it's a singular voice. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And so this is a message from God telling Christ that it's not a type of it's not implying repetition, but it's implying intensification saying that I will glorify it and glorify it again, even though it is a, a verbal message from God, but yet I don't think that this is a direct messenger in the sense of an angel speaking. Okay, I guess I must have misspoken, because that, that's what I was meaning to, oh. to say. Because what, what I was getting at, and I, I think I did misrepresent uh, what I was wanting to get across, I was wanting to see like what the people were thinking. Okay, yeah, okay. Yes. Because like the yeah. wording that they were using, I was like, do they know what they just heard? Uh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. My answer to that, due to doing research, is no. They thought that they heard an angel when, in fact, that was the audible voice of God. So, yeah, I, I completely agree. I just I didn't word it correctly the first time around. So, yeah. The rebuttal resolved. Shake yes. hands. Well done. Dangerous time to do that. Dangerous but. times. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a Germic somewhere. <laughs> um, I'm looking around for it, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, we, you know, when we, you talked about the voices and stuff like that. The voice coming down from heaven. Uh, so, in verse 30, I think this is something that we need to kind of point out, and, I, and I'd like y'all's opinion. Uh, but Jesus responded in verse 30 that the, this voice came not for me, not for my benefit, but for yours. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world be ca- will be cast out. So let me ask y'all's opinion. Who or what was cast out and when? That sounds like a question off a test, but it's not. I'm just saying who or what was cast out and when? When Jesus speaks here in verse 31. Well, the rule of the rule of the world. I don't think that that's like a singular. I think he's referring to just like worldly powers. Like it, it's time to to recognize like what you need to worship because I I think that could and again this could be reading this wrong. This could be an incorrect answer from from Matthew Thompson here. Big surprise. Um, <laughs> I think that that's kind of a a condemnation of how people have been worshiping the law for so long. Like people aren't worshiping God anymore. They're worshiping the Pharisees. They're worshiping uh, the Sadducees. These uh, worldly leaders, uh, people putting their, their faith in politics today. Like there's this declaration of, look, since I've come here in the flesh to die for your sins, like there's, there's going to be no excuse anymore. Like this is who you need to be worshiping. You put anything before me, mm-hmm. you're wrong. Like it's time to cast these, uh, worldly rulers out like that. That's kind of what I get from. Yeah. I think I think I think it's multifaceted. I think I think you're right. Uh, but it's ridiculous. The Bible only means one thing. Well, looky there. Uh, but with 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 the spirit of world, I mean that's that's a spirit of the world. I mean that's a type of uh, view a, a panel view of the world that there are rulers that rule over people and oppress people. So yeah, the way that the Romans and the way that there's religious oppression upon uh, that the Pharisees and Sadducees put on the Jewish people, you know, there's just corruptness throughout the world. So that is a, a type of spirit of the world that will be overruled and judged by Christ. And then this is being done by his death. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think it's also multifaceted to say that not only is it doing this, but it, but Jesus is treating this treatment because there's, there's an infection upon the world and sin is kind of the, the, the big, mumbo jumbo virus and this virus is causing damage upon all the systems of God's creation from religion to uh, political things to things of the flesh which Jesus has power over with Lazarus and the blind man and, and, and yada yada 
But then also, I think an instigator of that uh, is Satan himself. And I think that this is that Jesus is casting Satan as no longer a, a controller, a power over this, if we would only come into Christ's camp. So it's like Jesus is offering a new path, a new way, an antidote to this infection. This, this goes back to my paramedic mind here. But yet, that's what I think this is what he's, he's casting out, the, the, the infection, the virus that sin has placed upon the earth. and he's, Which is um, an interesting callback. Uh, you say that, it, it makes me think of what you have here in the notes, um, verses 32 and 33, referencing the, the bronze serpent. Ooh, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, which, that's, man, that story is so stinking cool. Because I remember, I think it was somewhere around two years ago that I heard a, a sermon preached on that scripture, and that was another scripture like I just I wasn't familiar with. So I was sitting here thinking, wait, hold up, they made a a, a what a, a sign with a, a bronze serp? What? Hold up. Oh, I also want to point out that the Star of Life on the ambulances and our paramedic badges, it had that's what the symbol of this the bronze serpent in the middle of the star of life that's what that's a callback to because the there's two types of medical badges with snakes around them and this is where the greek mythology of icarus uh with the he's a healer and it has two snakes and it. it has the wings on the side uh that is the greek myth with two snakes and the wings on the side but yet just the staff with the snake in it that's referring back to Moses and the bronze serpent bringing healing upon people that look up into that staff. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that uh, the scripture being referenced here from Numbers 21, uh, Moses' people had gotten bitten by a lot of snakes, and they had uh, that venom in them. Yes. And Thank you for saying venom, not poison. Did I tell you that I had a, a dude in Jackson County that got bit by a rattlesnake? And, like, it was legit. Like, it's very rare in this right. area in the sense of, like, getting bit by snakes. But yet... Lo and behold, in the backwoods of Jackson County, get bit by a rattlesnake. Some dude was checking his trail cams, and snap, snap, there he goes on his leg. Well, anyway, so <laughs> sorry, that doesn't need to go in there, but yeah. No, don't you tell me what to leave in the recording. Shoot, maybe, the, maybe uh, see if I would see if I do it. Maybe I like no hippo. Oh, I didn't I mean, think about that. Shoot, I don't it's on you, not me. But I mean, I'm I, not. It's not my line, hippo. I'll I'll put some sort of distortion on your voice. No one will ever know. It's not HIPAA. <laughs> no names were dropped. But anyway, um, so you had Moses' people that got bit by snakes and had that, that venom uh, going through them, and, and you had people like on the on the verge of death, and God says, hey, make this uh, more or less a sign that's got like this uh, bronze serpent on it, and if people look at it, they'll be healed, correct? Yes. Okay. And that... That story took me so off guard hearing about that. But then, um, as I was sitting here kind of reeling, we like, this is such a confusing story. Like, that's so weird. Why would they use a serpent? Like, that sounds so wrong. Why on earth do they do that? And I'm thinking this as the sermon's going. And then, of course, the parallels start being drawn to, to Jesus and how this is um, just really some epic foreshadowing to mm -hmm. how Jesus, Christ is going to die on the cross, take on all that sin, and people are going to look on him and, and have this opportunity to be rescued from the, the most terrible venom of all, sin. I was like, dang, that is intense. Man, the Bible's cool. Like, that that was just such a, an awesome sermon. I was also uh, thinking this, too, that the thing that was killing the people in Exodus, the snakes, they looked up to a snake, which ended up saving them, and Jesus took all of the venom yeah, yeah. upon himself and became sin himself, became 
I guess, like or better words in the parallel, became the snake upon the, the staff. And so when Jesus says here in verse 32 and 33 that being lifting up, I think that the people knew this story and they understood the, well, they, I don't want to say they understood the parallel because, you know, many times they're like, well, I don't understand what you're saying, Jesus. Well, at the very least, it, Scripture does make it clear that that's the parallel that he is drawing because verse 33 says he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Yeah. So whether or not they connected the dots, he did put the dots there. Yeah. The intent was there. So their response to that, for better or for worse, um, says the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So there is some misunderstanding here after all. Surprise, surprise. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so, uh, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they cannot believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and not understand with their heart and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And I'll pause there just because I've been reading there for a hot second. Um, but what do we think about uh, Jesus talking about the light here? Him saying, the light is among you for a little while longer. I think it's safe to say he's referring to himself there. Um, well, he, said, well, he said he was the light of the world, so I mean, no, I mean, yeah, no. I mean that, that's, that's no secret there. Like, that's not a real mind bender. Um, when he says the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going, what what do you think uh, he means by that? Well, I think it's, it's going back to what he was talking about earlier. Is that, you know those that uh, remain in darkness will stumble stumble over the sin, will stumble over death. But those that stay in the in the light, follow Christ, will see that stumbling block of death or sin and walk over it or walk around it. And so I think a lot of people here want to remain in the dark here, you know, and, and this goes back to the hardening of heart and stuff like that, you know, and the reason why Pharaoh's heart was hardened in Exodus is because he didn't want to acknowledge the power of God. And I th- and a lot of times the reason why our the people's hearts are hardened and our eyes are, are remained blind is because we don't want to know the truth. And with that, you know, I th- it's kind of like a like, like a, a relationship or a friendship or whatnots. If you want to have a friendship with somebody, let's say that you had like, let's just say me and Mason had a, a we have a good relationship, but let's say if something happens and we come bitter towards each other and I decide, okay, I want to reconcile. I want to reconcile. And I try to reconcile that relationship with him. I want to reconcile. I want to get back in a relationship with him friendship wise. And he just says, no, no, no. And he continues to say no. I mean, that's going to kind of, me as a human, that's going to kind of deter me back. Like, okay, if you, I want to give you your space because I care for you. I'm not going to place my friendship, force my my friendship upon you. And so that's what God does does with us. Is like, you know, He loves us so much that when we start denying Him and saying, "No, I don't want this. No, I don't want to know the truth. No, I don't want this." God's not going to bust down the door and say, "No, you got to accept my truth." This shows His type of character of love. That okay, I'm going to allow you to willingly accept my love if you want it. And if you don't want it, then you can remain in the darkness. 
And so it's the hardening of heart and the blinding of the eyes, those that want to remain in the darkness and remain blind. Yeah, and people do remain in the darkness. And I mean, it makes it clear that like uh, prophecy from Isaiah did, did make that clear that that would happen. So you have more prophecies being fulfilled. Interestingly enough, though, verse uh, 42 says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Kind of goes back to the blind man of his parents didn't want to acknowledge yeah. the power of God and yeah. uh, being fear of being kicked out. Yeah. And then it's saying, uh, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And that just goes back to like that heartbreaking reality that even faced with this insurmountable truth, proof that, again, at, at the very least, they have another prophet on their hands. They're just like, no, nah, I'll... I like my power better. I'm going to keep yeah. that. It's it's depressing to see that play out. Well, they like we've kind of noted before is that they'd rather retain their pride yeah. than show up with humility. And I think Jesus is showing uh, showing them it's like listen, this this is the only way to eternal life is humility, dude. I mean, he's showing uh, the best way to life. Yeah. And then the the chapter closes out with a mission statement from Jesus. Mason, I haven't I haven't heard your your beautiful sultry tones, so how about you uh, take us out of this this wonderful chapter with Jesus's final mission statement? And Jesus cried out and said, "He who believes in me believes not in me, but he who sent me, him who sent me, and he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whosoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And anyone hears my words." And does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command. What I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak... Just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So I just I want to point out one thing here is that like the very first phrase is that you know with this mission statement and I I recommend you listeners to go back and, and read this is that because there's a multitude listen to him this is you know right before I mean cl- close within the within a week of Jesus being crucified and you know the sincerity. Twin his heart when it says the first three words are Jesus cried out, and this word, uh, uh, this word cried, it's not in a sense of grievance, uh, but yet I, I believe that there was probably grievance upon his heart, you know, because it says his heart was troubled. But this word in Greek is krazo, and it means basically to cry of a raven, hence to cry out, cry aloud, uh, to cry or pray. Uh, to cry out loud, speak with a loud voice. And so it shows that Jesus is trying to get to people's attention. It's like, listen to me. So he's probably uplifting his voice because I, I don't like, you, you see on the movies and stuff like that, Jesus is nice and soft-spoken, a good teacher, which he is, but yeah, he's really soft-spoken and wants to be very gingerly with his delivery. I'm thinking, it says he freaking cried out because he knew he knows what's about to happen. He wants people to listen, and he wants people's eyes to be open of the truth. But he's like, he's like, guys, verily, verily, saying to you, I cried out. Listen to what I got to say, you know. So he, he he's he's definitely trying to get the point across hugely. 
<laughs> Dang it. Dang it. <laughs> uh, my, my main thought and my, my final thought for this chapter, really, um, is I, I still don't know exactly what I think about this, uh, just in terms of like forming how I would comment on this to like a stranger if I was just talking about scripture that I read recently. Um, when he says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the to judge the world, but to save the world. Like that, again, like I don't exactly know how to, to properly commentate on that. Because what, what I get out of that at face value is Jesus is acknowledging his function as his part of the Trinity. Um, the son's purpose is to save the world. Mm-hmm. And the father's purpose is, is to do the judging. So when I say that out loud, like obviously that, that doesn't contradict any of my beliefs or anything like that, but it, it, it's just wild to read like Jesus saying that. Does, it, does that make any mm-hmm. sense? Like it, it's just, it, it's a really powerful statement coming from him. Yeah. I mean, he's anticipating it and he understands that his name and his father's name is about to be glorified. But yet he understands the mission to a full extent of what's about to happen, but yet it still somewhat pricks his heart to pain. And I'm wondering, it, I think the pain of the world in suffering of sin overrides the pain and the suffering that he is going to endure. Yeah. Now, I like I said, I don't have any like groundbreaking uh, commentary for that. It's just that that verse just stuck out to me. Yeah. Well, I think this whole, I think this this last mission statement for sure is 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 more of a reveling in Christ's sovereignty. You know, just sitting back and just looking at it and like, okay, this is serious. This is nothing to joke yeah. about. And I and I know we joke around it from time to time and stuff like that. But yet, you know, when it comes to Christ doing the job and completing it to a full to the full extent that he was set out to do, yeah. you know, it's like I was made for this. It's like the the uh, in game for Avengers, you know, yeah, yeah. Hulk says it was like I was made for this, mm-hmm. you know, and Jesus, I think the same thing is like I was made for this. Yeah, that's the tone of voice. That well, I, get from him. I came for this. Let's say he, oh. I came for this. Oh. Sorry, hey. we're almost, not going to dabble back into that, he- that heresy. heresy there. Yeah, because yeah. uh, like the tone of voice that I get from Jesus uh, reading that is basically this. I mean, obviously Jesus, he, he makes it clear throughout Scripture that he knows what his purpose is, but there's this tone of voice that almost like speaks to me, him kind of mouthing to himself. Oh, it's getting real now. It's getting real. Mm-hmm. Like this, we're in the end game now. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, that that's John chapter twelve. Um, next week, my my sneak preview for that is if you thought the feet washing was was cool in this chapter, just you wait, because we got more cool feet washings coming up in John chapter thirteen. So there there there's your official sneak preview because you totally can't read ahead yourself or anything like that. But as always, you can find our our socials, um, our email, so you can you can blast us hate for all of our various heresies that we spew and then quickly redact so that we don't get in too much trouble. Uh, But they're in the show notes. You click on them. They're there. It's beautiful. That's the future. That's technology. But until then, Tanner, how about you give us those magic words? Peace out.